0: As an editor, I try to give everyone a chance. If someone doesn't have big name publications behind them, that is absolutely fine. I know what it was like to start with nothing to just be writing on a blog or for friends or, you know, oh, I have clips from my high school or college newspaper about something that's completely irrelevant to what I'm writing about now that's okay I think it's just your style and your personality and attitude actually play a really big part in it if a writer is difficult to work with but they're an excellent writer I don't care I don't want to work with them it's much easier to work with someone who maybe isn't as strong of a writer but who is willing to learn and willing to take edits and feedback and go through that process
1: welcome to the travel media lab podcast i'm your host Yulia denisuk an award-winning travel photographer and writer entrepreneur community builder and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support encouragement and structure i'm on a mission to help women storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space if you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place. Let's go! On the podcast today, we talk to Lauren Keith. Lauren is a freelance travel writer, editor, and guidebook author whose work has been published in Lonely Planet, Smithsonian Magazine, Atlas Obscura, Al Jazeera, Afar, and many more. She previously worked as Lonely Planet's editor for the Middle East and North Africa, and she continues to travel the region widely. If there's only one episode you'll listen to this season, make it be this one. Lauren is a veteran travel industry editor, and on the show, she drops so many pieces of wisdom. From working in-house at Lonely Planet to going freelance and not looking back, Lauren has crafted a career for herself that has her never coming back to the office, and I can relate to that feeling so much. We covered the writing process, including the freakout day and the writing day, imposter syndrome, yes, Lauren goes through it too, as do I what she looks for in a pitch, including the number one reason your pitch might end up in a trash bin, and her advice to emerging writers and photographers who don't have a big portfolio yet. I loved our conversation with Lauren so much, not only because we both share a love for the Middle East, for storytelling and for a creative process, but also because Lauren is a brilliant storyteller with a curiosity for the world. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Lauren. Before we get started, though, I want to remind you that our two-day workshop series called Getting Started in NFTs is almost here. The two workshops will be on August 10th and 17th, and in that time, we're going to cover all the basics you need to know to get started in that space yourself. Check out the link in our show notes to register or go to our homepage, travelmedialab.com. And if you're interested and considering joining us, you've still got time because we start on August 10th. All right, now back to this episode. All right, welcome Lauren to our podcast. I'm so, so excited to welcome you today and to have this conversation. I've been a fan of yours for so many years now, and we finally got to meet in Kansas City a couple of months ago now. I don't know. So it's just so wonderful to have you. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to finally be on.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. And yes, for our listeners, we met in Kansas City where I was at a, a wonderful Women in Travel Summit conference. And then we we met with Lauren. But how I actually know Lauren is that we worked together and we first got connected when I, I believe I pitched you something about Aman for Lonely Planet, and that's how we start working together. And then we, I kept in touch with you on Instagram. I always uh, resonate with everything you're posting and all your travels and stuff. So I'm just so happy that we, we get to have you on today. So thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. It's like, uh, coming from you, such a a skilled photographer. It's really, that's very kind words. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, so I want to start with your story, an ancient city in Saudi Arabia, untouched for millennia, makes its public debut that was published in the Smithsonian Magazine. It was such an awesome read. I loved reading it and uh for our listeners, we will um we will link the story in the show notes, but I just really loved learning more about the Namateans, which are of course this ancient civilization in the region uh, in Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And I also loved I really appreciate your use of language in that story and the turn of phrases uh, you used like divinely scattered seeds that was like I loved reading that that was so beautiful so I'm curious what do you love about this story
0: um it's one I I'm a bit of a history nerd so this was a fun one to be able to research and to be able to talk to archaeologists and researchers who, you know, have, they've dedicated their entire lives to studying this one civilization. There was one scientist that I talked to, um, who studies the Nabataeans, more generally not at that site in Saudi Arabia, but he just studies like the coins and the pottery from this one people. And it's just amazing to me that you could dedicate your entire life, your your entire work life to researching something that needs niche and that specific. And I just love that. But the story, I mean, you've been to Petra in Jordan, it's just an amazing, amazing sight. You know, as you walk in and see the treasury for the first time, that is something that sticks with you for your entire life. But what I like as well is telling stories and learning the history about places that aren't so well visited. So, you know, a lot of people know Petra, it sees, you know, upwards of a million visitors a year, but not that many people know about Hegra. And of course, Saudi Arabia was off limits to casual tourism for a very long time. Um, So I wrote that story to kind of highlight some of the different aspects of Saudi Arabia. And it was just so I just love when people tell me afterwards, like I had never heard of that place. I had never heard of that civilization. So just being able to tell stories that are out there, but not necessarily obvious is something I love and enjoy so much.
1: Oh, I can relate to so much of what you're saying, what you said about uh, meeting and interviewing these people who have dedicated their whole lives to this one thing. What I love about this career and this path is a similar thing, which is when I get to meet people that are so passionate about what they do, you know, their craft, because for me, I, I really love telling stories about different artisans and crafts, men and women and traditions. And so like when I meet somebody who is so passionate about something that they're doing, it's like that passion rubs off on me. And I love that so much. You know, you get to meet so many like which other career path I guess you, you would be interviewing a archaeologist who is spending their work life working on the Nabataean civilization and their coins and, and everything. It's so cool. I really love that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's you know it's a form travel writing is a form of journalism where people are really excited to talk to you. And you know, in other forms of journalism that's not always the case. But here you're getting to highlight what people are, um, like you said, so passionate about and have dedicated their entire lives to. So they want to talk to you about it and they want to, um, have their story told. And I think that just makes the interview so much more interesting for both sides.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. That's such a, that's such a great point. So. A lot of your work revolves around the Middle East region. And I believe also that's one of the reasons that we connected so well. And we have, you know, we we are developing such a good relationship too, because I'm absolutely in love with the Middle East. And I see that you do a lot of stories there. You also travel there a lot. So what fascinates you about the region and how did you first become... I guess, involved in the region?
0: Um, so I first became involved. Um, well, I started working at Lonely Planet many years ago now, and I actually started out doing some, I was working on the tech side of things. So I was looking after the database, but, but all of the guidebook information lived on. And it was my job to, you know, keep that edited and organized and make sure everything worked for all the different products that Lonely Planet made. But my background is in journalism, and the other editors on the team knew that, so a couple of editors moved on to other roles, and um, there were a couple of jobs that came up, and one was being the editor for the Middle East. And honestly, it's a tough one that not a lot of people want to do. I mean, you say Middle East and, you know, whether people are interested in travel or not, they're kind of like, oh, politics, war, conflict, uh, not fun. And no one, you know... People who haven't visited especially don't dive into it on a deeper level than that, which is really unfortunate because there are, I mean, some of the nicest people that I've met anywhere in the world, incredible history, incredible sites, And then a lot of like, you know, and life carries on. There's a lot of modern, amazing things that happen every single day. New museums opening, new restaurants opening, and it's just like It's such a dynamic and evolving place that, you know, that's not at all stuck in the past, but doesn't always get the credit from a lot of travelers and travel writers, unfortunately, or to their own detriment, shall I say, they're really missing out. But I, so I didn't have, I had traveled to the Middle East a few times before starting that job at Lonely Planet, but that really opened the door for me to travel there more often. And, so, and that was an editor role, actually. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the region a lot. The main part of my job was commissioning and editing guidebooks, articles for the website. Um, So looking after all of the content for that entire region. So I did get to spend some time there, but a lot of my time was not on the ground. But then since going freelance, I have had the chance to be in the Middle East a lot more often. I was just in Egypt for six weeks working on a guidebook for another publisher that I hadn't worked with before. So I was really excited to be able to do that again. And it's always a bit precarious in guidebook world. I honestly, after the pandemic, never thought I would be working on a guidebook again because I didn't think they would exist. So it was really I was really happy to be back in the Middle East and back doing that again.
1: Oh, my God. I love what you said about the Middle East and the unfortunate misconceptions and stereotypes that is plagued with i dedicated a whole part of what i do to that right with, with my nomad and joe's company and bringing people to the middle east because yeah it's just so unfortunate that like you said people don't spend the time to dig deeper and to uncover how beautiful and amazing that region is and how incredibly like you said how happening it is how many incredible things are like every time I go to Amman, I meet people, you know, entrepreneurs, artists, like, and they're all at the forefront of pushing their art forward, pushing their community forward, pushing business forward. And it's so exciting. And I, I don't get that at all from a lot of the stories or coverage coming out of the region. And it's so unfortunate. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Gosh, so many many questions I want to ask you now based on what you you said. Uh, I would want to understand a little bit better this whole idea of guidebook writing because I know nothing about guidebook writing. How would you say or what's the biggest uh, difference between, you know, a huge project like writing a guidebook and writing, let's say, a story for Lonely Planet? How do you approach that? What are some challenges? And for somebody who is perhaps interested in starting in the guidebook, Part of travel writing. What would you recommend to them?
0: Uh, yeah, guidebook writing is a lot different than writing for you know writing for a website or for a magazine. It is a massive project and a massive undertaking. It depends a lot on the editor and um, how well you know them and how well you know the guidebook series in general and how much of the book you decide to take on. Some people write an entire book by themselves, um, which is a lot, a lot, a lot of work. For this Egypt book that I was just working on, I was one of three writers. And it's just a huge undertaking, updating guidebooks for Lonely Planet. I think things have changed now. But in the past, it meant that you had to go, as a writer, you had to go physically go to every single place that was listed in the previous edition of the guidebook as well as find, you know, the coolest new openings, anything that had happened and opened since the previous update. So it's like, it's just a huge undertaking. You know, you're going, you're in a city and you're going to, I don't know, 10 restaurants, 15 hotels, all the museums, all the cafes, all the bars. You're going to everything. You're going to the bus station to check the timetables. You're going to the post office to see when they're open and closed and what services they offer. It's really, really, really in depth. And it's just it's really time consuming, you know, and like, I'm not complaining about it at all. But it really irritates me when people are like, Oh, you're on vac," like a few people said this to me. Yeah, you're on vacation, you know, enjoy your enjoy your holiday here. Enjoy your trip here. And it's like, of course, I will. But like, Going to five museums and five restaurants in a day isn't really my idea of vacation. Um, I do live at a million miles an hour, so <laughs> maybe maybe I would. But it's just a lot more in-depth, nitty-gritty. And depending on the publication as well, Some, t- so Lonely Planet asked writers to go anonymously. You were not supposed to tell the hotel, the restaurant, anyone that you were there. Other guidebook publishers work differently. So the one I was just working on it was fine to contact places in advance and say, hey, I'm coming, can you let me stay or, you know, show me around? Can I chat to someone who works here? So it's, uh, it's really, it's infinitely more in depth, I would say, than just doing an article and it takes a lot longer. By default, I was in Egypt for six weeks working on two chapters of a guidebook.
1: And I imagine it's a different skill of writing as well, right? Much more like fact checking based approach, I would say, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of fact checking involved with it, which a lot of writers really don't like that aspect of, which I can kind of understand. It's like, well, why do I need to check a phone number and opening hours if everything is on Google? And it's like, well, not everything on Google is correct. So it's best to go in person and verify. At least, you know, that was the previous stance. A lot of guidebook companies are doing differently now. But yeah, and then when you're writing a review of a restaurant, a lot of times you'll be limited to a certain number of words. So you might only get 60 or 80 words. Um, you might have to you know, write an introduction to a city and you only have 100 or 150 words. So it's a lot more constricted in some ways than article writing. You have to show off your creativity and your passion and your research in a lot lower word count for those individuals. It's very challenging. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I often say that inside our our circle membership that you know when you see like when you see those calls for pitches and it says you know. 150 words or 300 words and then you see some other ones that are like 800 words thousand words well the ones with the shorter word count are often the hardest ones because you're so so limited in what you can say in that time you have to be really inventive
0: <laughs> exactly so sometimes you know what if I end up writing something the requirement is that it's only a hundred words it's like well I'll just give myself free reign to start with and I end up if I end up with 200 words or 400 words and that's fine and I can cut it back but yeah it's hard it's hard getting it into that number. Or sometimes just like, well, I'm 100 words over, the editor can figure it out, (laughs) decide what they like and don't like.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, So you were working at Lonely Planet, and then you went freelance recently. So how had that transition been for you? Because I know a lot of people listening to us, they're interested in perhaps pursuing this a little bit more, more seriously going freelance, perhaps, perhaps even uh, leaving their employment behind and going, uh, going full time into this. So how was the transition for you?
0: The transition was tough, honestly. Going freelance is something I had thought about a lot and was very uh, curious about. And I wanted to do freelancing. Remote working and freelancing are two different things, but often get combined into the same one. And I wanted to do both. I work and travel. I want to be traveling all the time. I don't want a home base. I want to be a digital nomad and like go out and experience the world. And I got to do that for six months. And then the pandemic started and it was a little bit harder. But the transition, so uh, it's often the case in, you know, working in-house at a publication. Uh, You know, times are tough in the industry. And I decided to go freelance is somewhat a nice euphemism for I was laid off. My entire team was laid off. The company decided to restructure and we were all let go and our jobs were made redundant. So honestly, I don't know if I would have gone freelance without that kind of kick in the butt to say, okay, like, it just felt like the universe was finally presenting me a chance or maybe I had jinxed it in some way. It's like, I keep thinking about this, I keep thinking about this and not doing anything about it. And it's like, all right, well, now this in-house job is gone. What are you going to do? And that's not to say that I, you know, I leapt into freelancing because that was the option that was on the table for me at the time. I had some contacts, but not a whole lot. A few people have said to me, like, um, when, you know, first dipping my toe into freelance world, was like, oh, you'll be fine. You, you know, you know, like, you know, so many people from your job at Lonely Planet. And it's like, I don't know other editors. I know a lot of writers because that's what i would worked with before. But being an editor, I don't know any other editors. So the transition was tough. It was slow going to start, um, really relied on having a network and making connections with people who I had met through my work in-house at Lonely Planet. But in a perverse sort of way, one of the best things was that I was laid off with A group of 20 of my closest friends, all of the other editors, you know, were in the same position as me. So we could bounce ideas off each other, you know, work on pitches together, work on job applications together. And I really don't know what that transition would have been like without them, it would have been so much harder. And trying to go it alone, I just think would be impossible. And that's not to say that getting into freelancing was easy. I basically so once I found out that uh, my team was being let go, I gave myself three months to find a salaried in house job in London. Um, I thought that's how long, you know, London is one of the most expensive cities in the world. I adore it to the bottom of my heart and I really wanted to stay. But financially, I just couldn't figure out how to make it work without a salaried job. And the this, sal- like, you know, had a few interviews, but those didn't end up going anywhere. But there was a decent amount of freelance work that was starting to come in. And so, yeah, I just felt pushed towards that path almost. And I've now been doing that for about three years. And I really enjoy it. I can't imagine trading it for anything. I shudder to think about going back into an office or being tied to a nine to five. So I've really I've lucked out in the way that it's ended up for me. But it's taken it's it's not an easy road.
1: God, I I understand. I love I love that we're doing this interview because I now even understand better why I'm so drawn to you and like we have so many different things that or we're, like we have so many things that are you know similar experiences, similar tastes and stuff. Because that was my experience as well, actually. You know, when I um, made the transition into travel journalism, it was because my marketing job let me go, and it was the same, right? Because I I thought about it for so many years, but you're afraid to actually make that. Push. And so then the universe is like, well, let me help you. Let me give you that kick. So I, I can totally relate to that. And I cannot imagine working in, in an office anymore. Like I'm so far gone, like f- far down this road for the past six years that I can't imagine having a boss who will tell me what to do every day or, you know, showing up in an office and working in that structured environment. I I agree with you. It's so hard, especially in the beginning. And so it's amazing that you had that system of support, you know, with the 20, uh, 20 friends of yours who are going through the same thing, because that's really. I found that to be one of the most important things, especially at the beginning when you're still trying to get oriented, when you're trying to figure out, you know, who do you know, how to, how to make it work, what kind of pitches you need to write and all of that. So yeah, it's amazing that you had that. Um, so how do you, I guess the question then is, how do you develop that network of editors? So you said, you know, you, you didn't really know that many editors, you knew a lot of writers, but not necessarily editors. How do you get to know them? Like, where do you go or... You know, how do you develop that?
0: It's, it's a tough one. It takes a lot of time. Um, there are several ways. Being introduced by a fellow writer contact is always really good. If there's a, a project that um, someone kind of passes on to you because they think you know, they don't have time or think you'd be better suited. And then just doing your absolute best work and showing the, the editor what you're capable of. Networking events, when those exist, I know they like really went away during the pandemic, obviously. Um, but there used to be quite a few of those in London. Um, so either you know meeting with tourism boards or just kind of happy hour drinks, that kind of thing. But most of it is from other writer contacts and other friends who are doing you know freelancing in the same way that I am. And once you're kind of, and sometimes it's even been editors passing on my information to other editors. So it really depends, but I I hate the word networking so much with like, it just <laughs> as an introvert and I don't know, shy person, like nothing terrifies me more than going into a room full of strangers and being like, hi, I'm Lauren, I'm doing this. I'm like, oh man, that's just my worst nightmare. But it does, it leads to good things. It leads to connections and it's, it's worth doing. It is. It really is. And
1: you are reinforcing what I also believe and what I've come to know as the truth in in this industry, but in many other industries as well, is that at the end of the day, connections really matter. Who you know really matters. You know, I, I stepped into this industry quite naively. I didn't know anyone. And I was like, I don't need to know anyone. My work can speak for itself. And I wish that was really true. But at the end of the day, it's not to say that, you know, editors will only work with who they know, or is that, you know, that there is some sort of favoritism, although sometimes that can also happen, that editors get comfortable with working with the same writers again and again. But I think it's more just naturally human nature that we like to put the face to the name. We, we are more comfortable reaching out to someone with work or with opportunities, somebody who we know, right? Somebody who, who has a connection. So I think it's important, and let this be a warning sign to anyone else who's listening today that don't be like me, don't think that you can sort of just do it on your own. you do need people, you do need connections you, you do need to start reaching out and making those connections and I also hate networking. I find it to be oftentimes I'm, I'm not used to it, you know i can't I come from a culture where it's not really a thing that you do, and so I always felt like well, I don't want to boast about myself I don't want to like sell myself so how do I make it naturally you know how but I think it's if it's more about your curiosity your passion for travel and you're there connecting with other people who are just as passionate about travel and storytelling and that curiosity then I think it can be a nicer experience I guess you know.
0: Exactly. It's an intimidating situation to start. But actually, the conversation is actually really easy. You know, people are there because they can talk about travel for hours and you do. (laughs) And that's what, you know, even if nothing else comes out of it, except chatting about all of the previous trips you've taken, then yeah, you'd be surprised what comes out of that, actually.
1: Definitely. So I'm wondering, you know, you have this amazing body of work. You've been, obviously, you've been working at Lonely Planet, but also been published there. And, you know, Smithsonian Magazine, which we will link to, Atlas Obscura, Afar, many other magazines as well. What would you say is the most misunderstood part of being a travel writer? And on top of that, being a freelancer?
0: That's such a good question. I battle this all the time talking to people who are not in this industry, the first part we've kind of touched on a little bit where people think that it's like, this is vacation. And I'm like, and it uh, and that's like, again, I'm not complaining about it. But it's work. It's it's very hard. It's time consuming. It drains your energy. It's in a beautiful, wonderful way. But it is something that you still have to go away and recharge from. The other part about being a travel writer is that you kind of feel like you have to make a story out of everything that you're doing. And I struggle with that sometimes. Every single place you go. So I, we were talking before I was just visiting a friend in New Mexico. And it's like... Oh, what story is this? What should I, you know, taking my, I drove there. So should I go through certain towns on this road trip down there? Should I do this? Should I do this? And it's like, no, just let it be. You don't have to write about absolutely everything. And sometimes it can feel like, like you're always working, like you, it's not possible to switch off. And again, like, it's such a privilege to say something like that, uh, which I appreciate, but you know, this is, this is the industry and this is what it's like. Uh, freelancing is a very curious one. I find that a lot of people still don't know fully what that means. I'm not, my parents basically don't think I have a job or that I do any work, which I guess is true in a way. I mean, I, but I am my own business. I am my own company. I have too much work. I've had way too much work for at least six months now. Um, But you know, they just see me sitting at their kitchen table staring at a computer. And they're just like, why aren't you doing something today? Or I'm like, Oh, I'm going to a coffee shop. And I'm like, I'm doing work there. (laughs) I'm not just going to sit there. Um, But yeah, I don't think freelancing is really understood that well. And people kind of assume you're just not working, even though, I mean, you know, across so many industries, all it is, a lot of it is looking at a computer screen. And yet when I, but you really have it at the office, you know, so that counts. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're doing that at home, then it's not a job. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. But I think that's the battle is like convincing people. They're like, oh, what are you working on now? What are you doing? And like, no matter how many times I explain it, it's just, no, it doesn't seem to, uh, to make a dent. God, I can relate to that so well.
1: And and what you said about not being able to turn off and always looking for stories. Yeah, I feel that pressure all the time, you know. I haven't had a trip where I just went just to explore and just to be a traveler in in such a long time. And and even the last trip I did, which was like that, I was like, "No, I have to make a story out of it. I have to I have to be efficient. I have to produce all these stories, you know? And I think it's actually a really important conversation to have that we need to have those moments where we just don't work and we're not there to, for a story. We're there for our own enjoyment because then how do you replenish that well of creativity if you're not taking that time? You know, I found that to be true for myself when I'm traveling all the time where I'm traveling on assignments and and doing all these things. After a while, I'm so burnt out. No new ideas are coming to me. It becomes so hard to be writing those stories. And I just feel like I need that time to replenish myself. Uh, So it's so important not to get into that hole, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I kind of I after this Egypt project, slightly different, but it was just such a big project. I was in Egypt for six weeks, and then probably back and writing nonstop for six weeks, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, because like those were the deadlines. And I had to, you know, it was a book that hasn't been published since 2009. So it was a little bit like writing it from scratch. And I've, I've struggled with the work life balance part of it, for sure. Um, you know, having a salary job, I think, or an in house job made that a little bit easier. So it's always, you know, something to remind myself of as well. And something that you kind of you get so far down that line, like you were saying that you're like, you know, get burnt out, or, you know, I it's time to recharge. And it's just about Learning yourself and um, knowing when that point is coming, and ideally being able to see it a, a little bit further in advance, instead of arriving and being like, "Oh no, this is it. I am done. I am so burnt out." But it takes it takes time, and it takes learning yourself and what your limits are and what you can handle.
1: Yeah, and and I think the other really practical consideration of that is that when we're not working, we're not earning, right? So that's the pressure that you and you know I. I'm really bad at this, especially lately. You know, so many projects that are that I'm working on that I haven't taken weekends off in a while. in, In several months, at least, I've been working through the weekends and. Literally yesterday, I was like, "Yulia, I think you need to take this afternoon off because yeah, you're, you're reaching that point where you're going to be burned out pretty quickly, you know, but that's the, I think that's the rub really as a freelancer, as someone who works for yourself and you don't have that salary is that we have this pressure that if we're not working, we're not earning, you know, so figuring, but then on the flip side, figuring out where, well, what can you do? So that when you're not working, you're still earning, you know, that's a whole other conversation. We'll touch on it in the podcast in the upcoming episodes as well. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's such an interesting one with freelancing. You know, the saying is always that it's feast or famine. There's always too much work or not enough slash zero work. And I've been lucky enough for these last few months that it's been a feast. But then that makes it that is, you know, it's still, it's still hard on that side of things, because it's like, okay, I don't know when these jobs will end, they could end tomorrow, and then that's it. So I'm going to spend as much time as I can working on them right now. And then if they're like, okay, this project is done in two weeks, then it's like, okay, I've gotten as much experience and uh, money out of this as I could. And that's it. And on to finding new things. But then it's like, ah, well, this hasn't ended yet. And, you know, then other stuff is coming in. And it's just, it's all, you know, it's all in the balance and it will work itself out. But it's definitely something you have to actively manage and figure out for yourself what works.
1: Yeah, for sure. Hey, everyone, I'm interrupting myself for a quick second to share with you that I've created a resource just for you. If you want to publish your travel stories, but don't know where to start, you'll love this resource. In it, I've included 10 steps you should start taking right now if you want to see your travel stories on the pages of your favorite travel magazines. Be sure to go to TravelMediaLab.com slash start to grab this free guide. That's TravelMediaLab.com slash start. All right, now back to this episode. Well, I'm curious then, you know, it sounds like we're both very, very much on the same page when it comes to, you know, we love travel and we're passionate about doing this work remotely and, not coming back to the office. How did you first uh, become a travel writer? How did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Was it like from the beginning you're like, I'm going to be a travel writer when I grow up, or how did that happen for you?
0: Not at all. It was a it was a long and strange road. I'm from the middle of the U.S., you know, a very standard, generic place um, that not a lot of people visit. And growing up, we, my family, didn't really travel people, I didn't know anyone who traveled really besides people who went to Disney World every year. And so that just wasn't really part of it. But I almost think that that had an advantage in a way because not an advantage necessarily, but kind of like put me on that as like, okay, I haven't been anywhere, but I know there's a big world out there. So like, let's go do it. And a lot of people around me were like, what? Uh no, no thanks. But when so I studied journalism in college and um that was like in the depths of the great recession of like 2008-2009. Um what my dream job through high school through college was to be an editor at a newspaper. Um and then I had a shocking realization after actually doing that job as part of an internship. I was like, "Oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> this job is terrible. You go in at, you know, as a coffee- Editor, So you go, you work kind of a late night shift, you go in at 4pm, you leave when the newspaper is printed, which is probably midnight or one, you know, the newspaper comes out every day. So your weekends might be or your two days off might be Tuesday and Wednesday. And it just it dawned on me all of a sudden. And I don't know why it took that long. But it's like, how do you have friends. If you're working like this, Uh, your only friends are the other people in the newsroom who are there with you. But I still I love that aspect of it so much. I still love the editing side of things. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. So it's, you know, I have so much love and appreciation for people who make it as full time freelance writers, because that is not me and not something I could ever do. And I because I just I love I love the the background side of it more the editing, the reading, um, the project management side of it. And sometimes I'll get these big ideas that I'm like, Oh, I I really want to write this. And I want to make this happen. So I do. But the process of writing actually gives me a lot of anxiety. And I don't and it always just it feels like, I don't know, kind of pulling my heart out and, and putting it down on a page, which I know is so dramatic. And you know, some of the stuff I write is like, you know, just top 10 lists and things like that. But I'm like, but you know, who knows, maybe this is gonna win the Pulitzer Prize. No, I don't. I don't think it is. But like, that's, you know, I always want to put as much of myself in something as I can. So it's a very writing for me is a very emotional and energy intensive process. And I can't do it very often. Um, And I just haven't been trained in that way. So that's why I um, prefer... And not even prefer exactly, but glad to have uh, you know, that the vast majority of my work and my time is actually spent editing instead of writing.
1: I love that you're putting that fine point on this because you know, we 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 talk with a lot of writers and photographers on the podcast and we have we have had interviews with editors as well, but I just really love going deeper. Into this distinction between the skills uh, required for an editing uh, profession versus a writing one, and by the way, most writers I speak to, myself included, we feel the same way. That is like pulling your heart out uh, onto a page. It's really personal, right? Regardless of what you're writing, you know, my process, and I've shared this on the podcast before, but my process is the f- the very first draft. It's really hard to put it on a page for me. It's so hard. Like the words are coming out. So hard. So what I've learned to do is I've learned to sort of life hack my or hack my way into it with this process where I wake up really early at like 4am, 5am, which is way, you know, earlier than usual. And before even having coffee or brushing my teeth, I sit down in front of a laptop, I put a song on, on repeat, the same song on repeat. And I just put everything I know about the story on the page. And it takes me about an hour and it's like everything is, you know, comes out because at that point, your brain is not completely awake yet. So you're sort of entering this flow state. And then, you know, later on afternoon, I'm more sharp, whatever. That's when I'm editing. And I can edit three, four, five, ten times sometimes and painstakingly about every single word that's there and you read it and reread it. Like you said, there's so much care that goes into these words and sentences that are, you know, the top ten beaches or whatever project. So, you know, what I'm saying is, don't worry, we're all I think we're all feeling the same way about this, this process.
0: You know? I would actually love I don't know, some, I don't know, a podcast series that you could do next is what people's writing process is, because that is utterly fascinating. I, you know, just to hear that you like before you do it, you know, before you get up and do anything to get your day started, you sit down and write. I love that so much. My process is <laughs> that it's not even a process, um, something that should take me one day to write. So I don't know, I call that about a 1000 words, because I don't think I have more than that in me per day. But so I'm like, okay, it'll take me a day to write a 1000 words, but I needed the day before to like freak out about it. So I, you know, I sit there and like complain to myself. And I'm like, I don't know why I signed up to do this. And then it kind of, you know, it's almost like the stages of grief in a way. It's like you're angry at yourself for doing it. And then it's kind of, I don't I can't remember all of it, you know, like the resignation and then the imposter syndrome sets in. And this isn't my story to tell. And why am I the one doing this? And at the end of the day, all I hope to produce out of that amount of time is an outline of the story in an ideal world, like the introduction would be there. But at least like the bullet point outlines, maybe a few notes, like what you were saying, like, just get down absolutely everything you can, even if it's not in complete sentences, or the, you know, phrasing that you end up using, at least all of the ideas are out of your head and onto the paper. But yeah, and and I, some writers I've talked to, you know, they can't, the introduction is always the hardest part, right? Because it's what has to hook the reader immediately. And, you know, has to be your probably best written paragraph of the entire thing. And some writers say like, "Oh, I, you know, skip the introduction to start and then, you know, write the rest of it and then come back to that at the very end." And I'm like, "I can't. I can't do that. The introduction like it tells me where the piece is going, even though like you know that you have the general outline in your head, but I just don't feel like I can flow and move on until that introduction is written. So that will take me hours and hours, and then once that's done, the rest of it will come a little bit more naturally, but I envy the people who can just, you know, ask ah, skip that move on and then come back to it later.
1: Oh my God. I love, I love hearing your process. And by the way, I think f- for me, the opening paragraph and also the closing sentence, the last sentence of the piece is like, you seal the deal with it. And I loved your your closing sentence in the Hegra story. So again, there's, this is an invitation for everyone listening to check out this, this beautiful story that Lauren uh, wrote that we're referencing throughout today. But something you said about your process, two things stood out to me. One is imposter syndrome. Wow, guys, listen to this. Lauren Keith, who is this established writer and editor, she's been published in all these places. She's worked in, in all these places. She goes through imposter syndrome too, just like do all of us. And we talk about imposter syndrome so much also in our membership and in this podcast. It's something that all of us deal with. And how, how amazing, honestly, it's amazing for me to hear that you deal with this too, because then it's, it really tells me that, okay, it's, it's not a real thing, right? It's not the voice that tells me, it's not my story to tell. Who am I? What am I doing? Why did I say yes to this? It's not a real voice because that voice is not just mine. That voice shows up in every head that's trying to do something amazing, right? And how beautiful it is to realize that.
0: Exactly. And it's so true. And, um, you know, I, I haven't come to a full strategy as to what really works to kind of even make that voice a little bit quieter sometimes. But I really like the, you know, when I start to ask myself those questions of, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, why are you the person? Who are you? you're writing about Saudi Arabia and you're from Kansas. Like you're from nowhere. Who are you? But it's just like, you know, this is my passion. And this is what, this is a story that hasn't been told yet. And, you know, we all as writers have our own different types of audiences. And so if I'm, you know, if only 50 people read this story, then maybe I've convinced one person out of those 50 to, travel to Saudi Arabia or to learn about the Nabataeans or to awaken something in them that they're more interested in. And I think that's what it all boils down to at the end of the day is that like, this is my passion. And this is what I get to do. And I there's nothing wrong with me telling this story. And I'm sure you've had it as well. It's it can be challenging in certain places in the world in the Middle East. And there are story ideas that I've had or heard of and have backed away from because I'm just like, I don't, I love this story idea. I just don't think it's my story to tell. I would love to, but I think an Arab journalist or an Arab woman journalist should be the one telling that instead of me.
1: Yeah. And this is such a fine balance to walk or like fine line to walk that, that, that nuance of knowing where it is your story. And it's really just your imposter syndrome telling you it's not and where it's really not your story to tell. Right. There is nuance in that. And, and I think that also with experience, you get better at figuring out which of the two you're looking at here. Right. Uh, but I agree. I, I go through that process all the time, too. Like, is this my story? Or not, but I love how you brought it back to your passion, right? You're writing about something you're passionate about, and and the way I put it always is, what gives you the mandate to do this job? Well, this is the answer. This is one of the answers. It's my passion about the Nabateans. It's my passion about archaeology or history. It's the story that hasn't been told yet, right? So I just really love that uh, insight, and for our listeners also to to take note of that. That when you are struggling, and when you're, you know, when you're hearing those voices again. Try to bring it back to that question, right? This is my passion that I'm writing about. So that's why it's so important to always bring it back to that. Oh, actually, and and the last thing that I just wanted to tease out from what, what you said is that the importance of knowing yourself and your process. So if you know that you have a story of thousand words that's due next Friday, you know that you need two days. One of them will be the freak out day and the outline day and the other one will be the day to write. And how important is to know that, to have that knowledge, because now you can manage that, right? And hopefully that also helps us be a little bit more easeful next time we're writing another story, because now you know, this is my process. This is what I go through. So I I always say that it's really important that you know how it is that your process works, because then you can manage it and you can prepare for that and, and hopefully plan for that better.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it takes time to know that it's not just something that you realize, I don't, you know, and only when those deadlines stack up, or you, you know, you spend, I spend too long in the freak out process, instead of the actual writing process. But it's something you you know, as you were saying, like, you get to know yourself over time. And it's like, okay, you know, we've done this before. It's a, It's a mental, it's a mental preparation exercise, to some extent. But it's not something that even... I don't think unveils itself clearly and obviously, even the first few times you do it, it it takes time. And you have to even if like I know that day of freaking out and negative self-talk and imposter imposter syndrome is stupid. I know it's stupid. And yet it has to happen every single time. And you just have to learn to give yourself that grace and that time and say this is just this is part of the whole thing. And there will be a finished beautiful piece at the end of it. And this is what it takes to get there.
1: That's okay. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I love that so much. That's so true. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that since I started doing work on becoming better at understanding what imposter syndrome is, how it affects me, but also understanding my skills better. And looking at my experiences, looking at my accomplishments, acknowledging them, celebrating them, because we also don't do that enough, I believe. My imposter syndrome episodes are happening less frequently now. They're still there for sure. And and I think, like you said, they're always going to be there to some extent, but they're not as, let's say, debilitating as they used to be. I recover from them quicker now too. And I recognize that. And I say, oh yeah, that's my imposter syndrome speaking. You know, let let it wash over you, but let's keep going anyway. And let's keep doing scarier and scarier things, which is so exciting also, you know.
0: Exactly. And getting over it is getting over imposter syndrome is a skill in and of itself. And it's something that takes practice and effort and it's extremely it's an uncomfortable place to be and, you know, no one wants to be there in the depths of it. But as you were saying, the, as you keep doing it and putting yourself in those situations, the time that it takes to get through it decreases, maybe not ever to zero, but it does get smaller. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. And I'm also
1: looking at the time and I'm like, how is it that we're all, almost an hour in? Like what? I still haven't asked you so many questions I wanted to ask you. Um, I wanted to ask you more, a little bit more about, so in this career, in your path, you've had to look at a lot of pitches, I imagine, because you were a commissioning editor at Lonely Planet. And even as I understand it, you know, with your freelancing projects now, you're commissioning pitches and stories too. And I know this is a very broad question because it will depend on you know, what exactly you're looking for, what kind of projects, but in broad terms, what do you look for in a pitch?
0: Uh, first and foremost, that they've that the person has followed the instructions that I set out in the call for pitches. Um, so if I've asked for two clips or uh, a whole, whole portfolio or, you know, an introduction to, the, you know, a little bit about themselves and their experience in this place you'd be really shocked at how many people don't actually follow those basic instructions. So I used to be very nice and kind of wrote back and said, ah, this isn't quite what I was looking for, try again. And now I've gotten a little bit more cutthroat after years of doing this, just like, nah, straight to the trash, <laughs> not not dealing with this.
1: Hey, Sorry, can we pause here for a second? Because this is really important, you guys, but we just heard from Lauren, and I talk about this all the time too. If your pitch doesn't quickly get to the point of what it needs to do. It's going to go to the trash. And, and this is just the reality. And not because Lauren is some sort of a bad person, but because Lauren has a lot of things to do. She has a lot on her plate and she, she gets so many pitches come in, I imagine, on a regular basis. And so I talk about this all the time too. Look at the guidelines, like the pitching guidelines. Look at the instructions and in the call for pitches. It's really important to follow that. And I agree with you, many people don't. So that's really important.
0: (laughs) Definitely. And the, the shorter the pitch, the better. And some editors might disagree with that. And obviously, it will depend on the publication as well. But if you can't sum up the idea for your story in a couple of sentences, then you're probably not quite there yet with what the story needs to be. So as long, you know, I wouldn't say a specific word count exactly, but maybe 150 or 200 words If you've met all of the things that the editor has asked for in their call for pitches and been able to sum up your story in a few sentences, that should do it. You don't need to go into super elaborate details. You might not even need to call out the specific things or places that you're going to highlight within the story, but just say, here... Here is my idea. And then if the editor does want more information and they're intrigued by those few sentences, then they'll ask for more and that's fine and you can provide it at that point. But yeah, do field a lot of pitches. It's I as an editor, I I try to give everyone a chance. If they, you know, if someone doesn't have big name publications behind them, I'm at like that is absolutely fine. I know what it was like to start with nothing to, you know, just be writing on a blog or for friends or, you know, oh, I have clips from my high school or college newspaper about something that's completely irrelevant to what I'm, you know, writing about now. That's okay. Um, I think it's, it's just your style and your personality and attitude actually play a really big part in it. If someone is difficult, if a writer is difficult to work with, but they're an excellent writer, I don't care. I don't want to work with them. It's much easier to work with someone who maybe isn't as strong of a writer, but who is willing to learn and willing to take edits and feedback and go through that process. But yeah, I wish more editors would do that to just, you know, to give people a chance. On the other hand, I have been burned a million times over through various, you know, just many, many, many rounds of edits, or even writers who have written for bigger publications and have some, you know, strong clips behind them, you realize that there's actually a lot of editing that went into that. And maybe the original submission wasn't quite as strong. So it's it's a again, it's another skill that you learn over time and through fielding and working with pitches and writers, and you learn to look out for certain things. But yeah, I I do my best to give a lot of people a chance to get them that foot in the door because everyone needs that.
1: Oh, I love that. I am so glad that you said that, Lauren. And I hope everyone listening now paid attention to that as well, because, you know, it's funny how like you're sort of reinforcing all the points that I always talk about as well. And one of them is, you know, a lot of because in the Travel Media Lab community, In the membership, but also in a broader community, a lot of people are interested, but a lot of people are not pitching, are not reaching out because they're like, well, I don't have any clips, I don't have any portfolio. But it's kind of a catch-22. You need to start pitching to start building the portfolio, right? And how do you do that? What I always say to them is that if you do your homework... If you go through the guidelines and in the instructions, if you follow that, and by the way, a lot of publications are now putting their instructions up online. So it's much easier than when I was starting six years ago, that wasn't happening. But if you do that and you have a great idea that fits with this publication or with this call for pitches, a- an editor worth their salt, and that's my really like my, my big conviction, that an editor worth their salt is not going to turn somebody away because they don't have a big name publication in their portfolio if the idea is great and if it fits.
0: Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Clips are like, it's like an added bonus, but not the end all be all if the idea is solid, that's what matters. That's the result at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you've done for other publications. This is its own contained article. This is, you know, this is its own small project. So while it matters what you have done previously, and who else you've worked with, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not 100% of the deal. Yeah, it, it's given me goosebumps.
1: I love that. That's really wonderful. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad that we, we talked about this because this is really a big barrier for a lot of people. And unless you start pitching, again, it's that catch 22. You're not going to be able to progress, you know, because how do we get better? We get better by doing the work. My original pitches, my original, you know, from my first couple of years in this path, I look at them now and I'm like, oh, I wrote that. You know, you improve through doing the work. And so it's so important that you start doing that.
0: Absolutely. One of my favorite things that I've ever read, and I'm going to misquote it or not quote it exactly correct, but it was something that uh, Cheryl Strayed wrote. She was the author of Wild and a few other books. But she wrote something, you know, she has the write like a motherfucker. And like that just always sticks with me. But there was a part in those series of articles. And this kind of ties back into imposter syndrome as well, where, you know, she talks about practicing writing. And it's like, it's like doing sets and repetitions. It's a muscle that you exercise. And then she compares writing as a job, as a career to being a coal miner, And she says something like, do you think the coal miner goes into the mine and just stands there and is like, oh, I don't know. What am I doing here? It's like, no, the the miner just digs. You start digging and you get there. And I think like just repeating that to myself in my head is like you just you dig. You start going. The only way to get to the end is to start. I love that.
1: Oh my god, I love that. That is awesome. Yeah, the, we are we are like miners in some cases. That's true. And we and we dig. And sometimes the the inspiration. You know, it's interesting. It, listen, we we could probably have a whole conversation on, like you said, the writing process and the intricacies of that because it's interesting how this works. Sometimes it is that you know hard. It's like pulling teeth. It's like you're digging through this mess to get to the other side. But sometimes I do feel like. I almost like enter some sort of highway and words just flow out of me. Like they're just been giving to me from somewhere and they just come out. It's so interesting how sometimes that happens too, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the ideal to reach. And maybe you have to do a little bit of digging to get there and then it comes. And it, it's, it's different for every piece, I find. Some are like being on that highway and some are like standing in the cave. And you never quite know which, you know, how it's going to go. But I don't, it's it's always a process.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so well, then to close on that loop, then what would you say to someone who is, you know, maybe interested writing or like pitching Lonely Planet or pitching Afar or pitching any of these other publications and doesn't have this big portfolio to start with? What would you like if, if there's one thing you could tell them, what would you tell them?
0: go out in the world, read, write. Um, These are the things that it takes to be a writer is to know other people's work, to see what's happening around you, to be curious about what's happening around you. But it it takes time. And, you know, just because uh, an editor doesn't respond to you or that your pitch gets rejected, that doesn't mean that the idea is bad at all. It just means that it's not a fit for that publication. And I think All of us, no no matter how long we've been writers or in this industry at all, have, you know, at least a handful or maybe even like a bank of ideas that it's like, well, I just, I don't have the right home for this yet. Or it's been rejected from five places and I don't know where to put it yet. And all of that stuff will find a home. Maybe that home ends up being your blog or, you know, a self-published book or something like that, that doesn't make it lesser at all. It just, you know, every every idea, if you're passionate enough about it, will find a home. And because that's the story that you want to tell, you should tell it.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that so much, Lauren. That is so beautiful. And and I'm actually surprised that we haven't even touched on rejection up until now, because it's such a big part of this process, right? Like getting rejections. and And that's another thing that really stops a lot of people because they're, Not only they are worrying about the portfolio that they don't have, but they're also worrying about getting a rejection. And I always also say that it's such a normal part of this process and there is nothing to be afraid of because all it means is that at this time for this particular editor, for this particular publication, this idea is not a fit. But the problem is that we often internalize it as, oh, you're no good or your ideas are no good, you know?
0: Absolutely. And I like. I think, you know, a lot of freelancing or a lot of being a writer in any capacity is, you know, developing a slightly thicker skin, but I'm not going to lie. Anytime I get a rejection, it hurts. I have to mope about it for the best part of the day. But exactly, it's learning. It's not taking it personally. But the other part of that as well is, and the phrasing that I always tell myself is that don't don't censor yourself if you haven't sent the idea, you don't know how the editor is going to respond. You have no clue. Maybe they'll accept it within 10 minutes. Let them be the gatekeeper because that is their job and their role. But don't censor yourself because you think something might happen. You have no idea what's going to happen. It could be your big break into the publication that you've always wanted, but you don't know oh this sounds so cliche you don't know unless you try but it's true don't censor yourself
1: it's so true and it, it is so true and oh my god you you've already given us so many Amazing wisdoms today. I love it. Don't censor yourself, guys. I think I might take that one on and keep repeating that one because it's so, because we do, right? That's like all these barriers that we have in our own head about what's gonna happen, what's not gonna happen. So we stop short of actually doing something, and that's the most important thing we could do. Oh my god, I love this. So we're gonna start wrapping up, but before we do, I wanted to ask you, what is something that you are uh, working on right now that you're more most excited about?
0: Ooh, I'm kind of in a um kind of middle phase right now. Um, So I've submitted all of my stuff for the Egypt guidebook within the last month. So I'm getting a few edits back uh, here and there. So I'm kind of, we were talking a little bit before about trying to figure out, you know, the work life balance and There are some story ideas that I have that are bigger pieces that I really want to do that will require a lot of time and research and visiting different places that I haven't been to yet. So I'm trying to figure out how to carve out that time for myself and give myself that time and that space to do these bigger stories that I want to do. Because I don't, like I was saying before, I don't actually write that often. But when I do, I want it to be those big pieces that have been you know, that the seeds have been in my head for a while, and I just haven't had the time yet to do anything about them. So I'm hoping in the next few weeks, maybe to, I don't know, figure out how to give myself the time and space and make sure I have the energy to do it. Because I think I don't sending out pitches is also something that I find very energy intensive and a little bit draining, because essentially, Like I was saying before, like you need to be able to sum up your story in two or three sentences and to be able to get to that point is a lot of time and research that goes into that process already. So yeah, it's just sitting down and giving myself the time to do that. So I'm sure that doesn't actually sound very exciting and maybe a little bit nebulous, but um, that's something that I've struggled with is that balance. And so I really want to figure out how I can spend more time working on those passion projects of mine and kind of put the regular steady work as steady as it is at the moment anyway a little bit to the side and decrease that while giving myself more time to spend writing.
1: I recognize that that struggle and that process very well so I, I appreciate that and, and no I, I I can relate to that. So how can people find you or if they want to stay connected with you stay connected with your projects, what you have going on, your travels?
0: Probably the best way is on Instagram. Uh, My username is no place like underscore it. I'm usually posting what I'm up to on there. I don't use too many other social media platforms, but I've gotten quite a few messages from random people, especially when I was in Egypt, you know, really enjoying the photos and really liking those. So
1: yeah, come say hi. Okay, awesome. Good. So we will close this amazing conversation that I want to keep going with but we have to close it. And maybe we'll have you on again at some point, because I feel like we just scratched the surface on most of these. But uh, we will close with the question that I often close with, which is, and it's a big one. So maybe how would you start thinking about it? What does it mean to be a woman in travel who is stepping into her brilliance today? That is a big
0: question. I think it, I mean, there are lots of pieces of the conversation that we've just had that tie back into it. But I think the one, the final piece I'm going to go with is that don't censor yourself. We, women are always, you know, are often taught to be in the background and be quiet and don't disrupt anything. And that's not at all our place. And we should be out there doing as we please and as we want you know, don't let other people put you in that position, definitely. But don't let yourself put yourself there either. It's our job to break out and to find that brilliance and to follow those passions. And we have the ability to do it. And don't tell yourself no, if that's what you want to do.
1: Lauren, that is a beautiful way to end our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming. I enjoyed it immensely.
0: So did I. You're so welcome.
1: Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation we had with Lauren. And if so, I want to ask you to please take a minute to support our show. You can do that very simply right now by leaving us a rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or by sharing this episode with your friends, loved ones, posting about it on social media. It really helps us to get discovered by more listeners that would find our show helpful. And it means so much to me. I read every single review we get, and I take them very seriously because I want to create a great show for all of you. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today in our conversation with Lauren or in any other episodes of our show, please take just a minute right now to support it by leaving us your rating or review. That is one of the best ways you can help us out. And I want to remind you that our two-day workshop series called Getting Started in NFTs is almost here. The two workshops will be on August 10th and 17th, and in that time, we're going to cover all the basics you need to know to get started in that space yourself. Check out the link in our show notes or go to our homepage, travelmedialab.com. And if you're considering joining us, you still got time because we start on August 10th. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.